You are listening to Views from the Peak, a mini-series created and published by the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Each month we will explore a number of stories from members of our own congregation who have survived something really, really challenging to their faith. Situations and circumstances that made them contemplate quitting on God all together. To make sure we offer you a trigger warning, you're going to hear during these episodes about experiences with depression, infidelity, infertility, addiction, cancer, suicide, and more. The goal is to capture the raw honesty of what it was like traveling through these dark valleys of faith. And furthermore, how on the other side we've obtained views of God's grace showing up in some of the most unlikely of places. On today's episode, you're sitting down with me, Pastor Kyle Meyer, who's going to be the host of this podcast going forward. Today, you're going to hear about my own spiritual journey, my own story, what it was like being raised in a military family that encountered things like addiction and substance abuse, what it was like to come to find God and Jesus in the middle of high school during a soccer tournament. And overall, What you're going to hear is a story of someone going through theological homelessness, questioning and deconstructing pieces of their faith with hopes of reconstructing something in its place that aligns a lot more with the Jesus we claim to follow. We hope you enjoy. Well, hello everyone. I'm Julie Linville. I am the communications director for the Peak Church and I'm really excited because today I get to use my journalism major and interview someone on this podcast and his name is Pastor Kyle Meyer. Hello, Pastor Kyle. Hello, Julie. (laughs) I'm really excited about getting to, to interview you. I've had so many questions about your spiritual journey over the years and I've heard tiny bits and pieces over the four years we worked together, but I've never gotten the full story. So I'm excited. Well, and it'll be fun. It'll be fun because it might set sort of the tone or the pace of what this season is going to be, which is a lot of conversations with folks who have navigated some sort of spiritual valley, some sort of spiritual darkness, some sort of uh, time that was really, really trying to their faith and to their relationship with Jesus. And then came on the other side of that, and are now having a view from the peak, haha, um, and get to share some of the things they learned. And so um, I think this will be fun, especially that some people who have been part of the peak for many, many years, they may know bits and pieces of this story, uh, but there's also a lot of new faces, a lot of new folks who have joined our family. So it'll be cool to share a little bit of that for them. Yeah, I think people will enjoy hearing it because you you don't have the typical grew up in the church kind of story, do you? Sure don't. No. Nope. All right. Well, let's start out then. Why don't you tell me tell me about your childhood, Kyle? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I think one of the things that's really important to know about uh, my story is kind of the the nomadness. Uh, I'm not sure if that's a word, but um, that I sort of, that uh, defined a lot of my journey. So. Those of you who grew up in military households, you know what this is like. Uh, but we we moved all the time. So uh, I'm a I'm a son to Brian and Robin. Those are my parents' names. I have two siblings. I'm the oldest of three. 
Uh, but And we uh, grew up in a traditional military family who moved around all the time. So I was born in Florida, uh, Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Uh, moved uh, a year after that to Los Angeles, then to Ohio, then to Texas, then to Georgia, then to Colorado. So we just bounced around all over the place. And so growing up, uh, I would say not only was I, so I was sort of like geographically a nomad and almost like constantly sort of meeting new people and having to redefine myself at the new school with the new friends. Um, and But uh, spiritually as well. Uh, spiritually, so for us, our home, like we, our faith uh, was cultural. So some people who are listening to this, you know what this means, but it's, so faith for us was not something that we practiced on the regular. We didn't do so as like a family. We didn't pray together very often. Church was optional for us. Like I'll never forget like an early experience, like my dad saying, hey, I'm going to go to church. Does anyone want to come? And it was like a super awkward moment of like everyone like, uh, no thanks. <laughs> so like faith for us uh, wasn't one of those things that grounded us. And so like I one of the words I often use when I talk about my, my childhood and my raising and whatnot was I didn't have a lot of roots. Like I didn't have a lot of things like grounding me. And so especially once I hit the teenage years, it sent me into a whole bunch of different directions searching for identity and who the heck am I and what do I want to do with my life? And so um, it prompted a lot of, lot of those questions. And so um, I think another piece of my identity that's important to know um, that some folks who are listening to this have had uh, direct exposure with or maybe indirect uh, is I also grew up in a family that very early on we encountered a lot of dysfunction and unhealth so addiction is something that me and my family have a lot of familiarity with and so the other thing that's always really important for me to point out about I guess my own story was one of the things that I have had to process and work through is I grew up a lot faster than a lot of my friends like I remember because of uh, family drama and fights and different things like that due to addiction and things like that. Just having an awareness of the world that, you know, sixth graders didn't typically have and uh, didn't have exposure to and those sorts of things. And so I think I had to grow up fast um, and I had to grow up fast again without much uh, roots or sort of um, grounding, I would say, uh, especially as, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of us find this in different, we find this in our families, we find this in where we grew up, we find this in our faith. I didn't have much of that. So I think a, a wanderer in the truest sense of the word is sort of um, where I found myself, especially coming out of that and going into high school and some of those sort of defining years. Right. So during this time, it sounds like you didn't go to church. Did not. No. Were you even like the, the C&E, the Christmas and Easter? Yeah. Goer? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we would definitely go on major holidays, uh, or I think another thing that shifted for me was the moment I started having friends that went to church. So again, again, mm-hmm. Christianity for me was cultural. It was cultural. So it was um, social in that it connected me to people that I was friends with or wanted to be friends with or my family did or something like that. Um, and it was also the other role that it played was it was... Um, it was probably the basis, the foundation by which my parents built a worldview for us. So it was a narrative. It was a story uh, told about the world that, you know, all oh, this is an accident. God created this. Like sort of. So like, mm-hmm. but that was the extent of it. That was the extent of it. So um, a, th- a, th- 
a deism, if you will, like a, a belief that God totally exists. This God created all this stuff and is in control somewhat somehow. But beyond that, it never sort of got granular into our ordinary sort of lives. But yeah, that's probably the extent of it. Like that was the extent of faith for us. But your grandfather was a pastor. So um, what did that mean to you? What, what sort of meaning did that have in your family? So maybe this sort of typifies a little bit of the familial dysfunction. Um, so um, there also there was some a little bit of a strain between my grandfather uh, and my mom. So that's that's mm-hmm. her dad. Uh, they had a really strained relationship, and so as a result of that, there were key aspects of him that I actually didn't even know about until later in life. So for example, I didn't know he was a pastor until I received a call to ministry, which we'll get to later. And so for me, there was this, there was this like, my grandfather was this mysterious figure in my life in that I knew he was a man of faith. I knew he was a man of God, but the biggest impression, honestly, that he made of me at an early age was he was just sort of like, he was one of the few emotionally stable people in our family unit, in our connected sort of network that, I could see to, I could run to, I could lean upon, I could depend upon. And so um, I think one of the way, like now, one of the things when I look back upon my journey, and this is the way it is for most of us, right? Most of us, we don't see God sins. We don't see uh, people that God sort of strategically placed in our lives until it's retrospect, uh, where we sort of look backward and we go, oh, holy cow, like I didn't see it in the time, but like that was totally someone God was strategically using to reach me. And so I would say that my grandfather wasn't, um, he wasn't like someone who sat me down and said, now Kyle, have you asked Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior? Like that, those conversations never happened. But for me, I think the power of my grandfather's witness in my own life uh, was just his example, his example, his life, uh, his spirit, who he was, uh, the kindness and the gentleness with which he and sort of went about his life. And um, I think those things, maybe they didn't sort of, they planted seeds, as scripture mm-hmm. talks about. They planted seeds of faith. He didn't, he wasn't there to harvest them, but uh, he was certainly, he planted a number of them. Got it. So who was God to you? Who, who was Jesus to you? Uh, so like, I, I remember um, a couple of times, like both in like late elementary school and in middle school, when I actively tried to communicate with God, but they were almost always out of fear. So they were like out of, so I would go to, I still, again, so my connection to faith, my connection to uh, religion in general was largely cultural and social. So like, I would still go to VBS because that's what you did. And that's where you sent your children when you wanted a two hour break from them during the course of the week in the middle of the summer. And so I remember early on my early relationship with God was primarily based in fear. It was primarily based in fear. So I would go to God when I was afraid of my sin or afraid of my transgressions or honestly if I was just afraid of hell so I'd go to VBS or I'd go to these church basketball camps sports is a really really big part of my journey really big part of my story I'd go to these camps and a lot of the expressions and versions of Christianity that I was exposed to were those that instilled the fear like they were trying to instill they were trying to scare the hell out of you quite literally so they were 
constantly preaching this sort of message of the gospel that was, you better turn or you're going to burn. And so honestly, my earliest, some of my earliest, and I can remember vividly uh, a moment in my bedroom where I got home from one of these basketball camps and I had this little pamphlet that they gave me on how to become a Christian. And I remember praying the sinner's prayer and I prayed it probably easily like 30 times because, which also goes to maybe my uh, obsessive compulsiveness, but that's another podcast. Um, but I sort of was like, cause I was afraid it wasn't sticking. So I was like, I need to say this as many times as possible. So as to like prove that I, I, I want to be a believer. I want to, I want to be a follower, but um, eventually the, the effects of that uh, camp and those messages they wore off, I'd go back to my own life and I would just, be about the same sort of things middle schoolers and high schoolers are about, which Jesus wouldn't high on that list. So, so honestly, I would say faith, like God, my relationship with Jesus is largely non-existent except when someone uh, tried to come along and sort of um, preach hell and preach the, the, the importance of the sinner's prayer and turning, or you're going to be in really big trouble. So, um, this will be a key part of the story later, but this was this is a lot of the parts of faith that have taken a long while to still detox from. Some of us know what I'm talking about. Like you, your earliest expressions of Christianity were largely legalistic. They were largely uh, very very judgmental, and so you're still sort of detoxing from that uh, kind of version of God, that version of Jesus. And so, honestly, those were a lot of my those are my most early moments, most early memories of Jesus were this was someone to be feared, not someone to be trusted, not someone to be just sort of captivated by, just someone to be deathly afraid of. Mm. But somewhere along the way, the way you thought about God changed. So what happened? Who, yeah. who was there? Where, you know, yeah. tell me all about that. Yeah. So again, uh, a part of my story that's really um, important is just the <clears throat> the constant level of transition. So we're moving every four years. Every four years, moving to a new part of the country, having a new circle of friends, all of this stuff. And so one of those moves happened right after my freshman year of high school. So your freshman year of high school, you're going through, again, if you've you're, this is true for all of us. You're insecure. You're going through all these identity questions. You're trying to figure out who the heck you are and you're just trying to fit in and all those various things. Well, for me, like largely my methods for handling uh, all of the deep, deep challenges of high school and, and that time was uh, sports. So again, I played, I've been playing soccer since I was four years old. Uh, so I've been playing it for largely my entire life. Um, and the other big part of how I sort of sought to do that was through parties. Like I would just sort of do what a typical teenage boy would do, which is go to parties and, uh, do whatever it took to fit in and to connect. And so largely that was drinking. That was all the various things that, uh, folks would get into in the weekends. And so I'm doing that sort of life big time when I'm living. So I'm living in Georgia at the time. Um, and, after my freshman year of high school, we have to move again. And this time we move not just like one state over, we move across country. So we moved all the way to Colorado. So I 
it, that was easily one of the hardest moves because if you think about it, when you're young, sure, you're going to miss your best friend Sally from second grade. But like then you just have a quick memory. Like when you're younger, your memory just sort of your attachment to things is not as strong. But when you're in ninth grade, like it's just that's a hard move. That was the hardest of all of them. But again, I look back on that and I say, like, this might have been one of those strategic things that God did because had that break, that severing not happened from not only those folks and those connections, those friends, but that life that I was living, I don't know. I don't know if I'm sitting here today. So that break happens. We, we move cross country, we move all the way to Colorado, and I start trying to make new friends. And so, again, my defense mechanism uh, was always sports. So whenever I'm struggling to fit in, I'm struggling to connect, I'm trying to figure out sort of who I am and what I where I belong, sports was always my default. So start playing soccer, join a traveling soccer team, and um, our very first tournament is when the story really takes off. So I'm a sophomore in high school and we go on our first traveling tournament we fly from Colorado all the way down to Orlando Florida and so we're there and um I don't know these folks very well and they don't know each other really well this is a brand new created team with a brand new coach and I don't know anything about these folks other than their love for soccer and neither does the coach and so the coach when we're driving it was funny because we landed in Orlando and we had like a 50 minute drive like maybe close to an hour drive from the airport to where we were staying for the course of this tournament and so we're driving and our coach this is back uh, iPads were just sort of arriving this was you were still sort of carrying around those monster binders full of CDs and so he was like okay let's do this to get you to know each other a little bit, everyone pass up your favorite CD and play one of your favorite songs, and we'll, and you tell us why you like them, and you know, whatever. And so, it's a van full of teenage boys, and so it's like, <laughs> uh, it's Linkin Park, it's Fallout Boy, it's like, I mean, it's, it means all these sort of stuff. And then it's my coach's turn, and my coach, the CD he puts in the, um, CD player is from his worship band back home. And I will never forget the immediately when he told us what he was playing, like my eyes rolled so hard in the back of my head because I was like, dude, like we're, we just got done listening to like a punk rock album and like, we're all just laughing and cutting up. And now you're going to like bring the mood down and play this worship music or what have you. But a little side fact that's really important to know. Is um, so not only was my coach a devout Christian, but I came to find out later that a number of people on my team, a number, a number of my teammates were also devout Christians. Mm-hmm. I didn't know this at the time. This is not a Christian team. It just so happens that a like a majority of the folks, and when I say devout, I mean like they're going to church every single Sunday. They're in Bible study midweek. So these are folks who are actively. These are high schoolers who are rarely actively feeding their faith um, on, a, on a consistent basis. So it was weird and awkward to me, not so weird and awkward to a lot of the other folks um, in the band. And so like, uh, in the band. And so they're listening to this band, they're enjoying the music, and a couple moments go by where it's sort of like in the middle of the song, and... Still to this day, I struggle to find the words for what transpired in the van, but something happened. Something happened. 
I'm not entirely sure what. If you're interested and you want to listen to this song on your on your own, the name of the band is called Fike and Dana. Fike and Dana. And the name of the song is called You Are There. You Are There. Um, and there's a particular part of the song where the artist says something to the effect of, all my life I've heard nothing but empty words, but in your eyes I see something more to me. And I don't know how many people who are listening to this have had this experience, but in that moment it was almost like a light turned on. It was almost as if a, a part of me that had not been alive, that had not been awake, was now awake, alert, and alive. And it was the part of me that... Uh, craved a relationship with Jesus, wanted a relationship with Jesus, had observed the type of life that a lot of my teammates had been living and what they had found in this God and being desperately hungry and starving for it. And so again, like in a moment, in a song and like a fleeting four minute song, uh, there's a, there's a passage in the Psalms where it says, uh, God reached down and took hold of me and, that is how I sort of describe this moment. Uh, I wasn't seeking God. I certainly wasn't interested in Jesus or God. Mm -hmm. Several weeks leading up to that, a lot of the members of my team were inviting me to their youth groups and stuff like that. And I would just routinely tell them no. Like I was like, no. I was like all to sh like just sort of paint a picture. Like I had, I, ha I was doing nothing, nothing to pursue after a relationship with Jesus. And in an instant, uh, my world flipped upside down. And so I remember getting to the hotel and pulling a couple of the guys aside who I knew were devout Christians. And I sort of just explained to them, this is my life. This is, this is where I've been. This is the type of things I've been chasing after. And I don't want to do it anymore. I want to chase after Jesus, but I don't even know where to start. I don't even know where to begin. And this time they led me through a version of a sinner's prayer, but it wasn't about highlighting all of my crap and all of my mistakes and all of my regrets and how evil and awful and deserving of hell I am. It was more so highlighting the compassion of God, the love of God, how much God wanted and been searching for and pursuing after a relationship with me. And that moment, it was it was like celebrating what already was, uh, celebrating that God had already has had already loved me and had already accepted me. It wasn't conditioned upon my response. And so this moment was just about a celebration of my awareness of it and come to terms with it. So, but I have to, so I look back at myself at 15 and that feels like such an awkward conversation to go and have. And given that that wasn't the type of conversation that you were used to having, how did you, were you nervous about it? Like, do you remember what was going on in your head before you even approached them? Um, no, I don't remember it much, but I, do, I think like one of the things that I think high schoolers are really, really good at is, um, they may not be like super, super vulnerable, but they are always paying attention. They're always paying attention. So like I was always paying attention to like, what were the dynamics? What was, could I trust this person? Could I not? Could I open up to this person or not? Now, Mind you, it also probably just sort of says more about like what my personality was in that like I, I, I feel like I've always been just an open book who is willing to just sort of like I, I am consistently the person who 
like I don't I, I prefer actually to avoid small talk like let's have some good conversation yeah. about something that's actually substantive so let's talk about your childhood let's talk about your background let's talk about your uh, your questions your doubts let's talk about all that so like for me I can go zero to a hundred real quick and so I think as a high schooler while I didn't have those conversations on the regular I also paid very close attention to like who I could and couldn't who I could and could not have those conversations with and so I think like just by way of other things that those particular teammates had shared or said. Mm -hmm. Again, their reactions to the music, the fact that the music played and they were interested in hearing the song. I was like, like little signals went off of like, oh, okay. So if I wanted to have a faith conversation with them, it seems like they would be open to it. Uh, as opposed to the person on the other side of the van who was doing what I was doing, which was rolling their eyes, thinking this was weird, thinking this is dumb sort of thing. So now I will say, I will say like, I don't, I look back, I look back on my story and I look back specifically upon those, those persons that God surrounded me with. And this is yet another example, yet another example of God strategically, God, um, very, very wisely positioning people in my life who God knew that the moment I uh, opened up to them, uh, they would feed and fuel. Scripture talks about fanning the flame, uh, that they would actively feed this spark that God had sort of lit in me. And I think the moment in Florida, the, the moment on that soccer tournament trip was sort of the, the spark lighting. And then immediately the people who surrounded it were the ones who fanned into it and ign ignited it even further. Mm -hmm. So you speak with with your teammates down in Florida and you, then you have the soccer tournament. Is anything different while you're playing soccer? Like, is anything different or does it, and I guess what I'm trying to get at, was it like a, um, were you all in from the beginning? Was it a slow burn? Yeah. What happened? Yeah. So for me, and I know this is not the experience of all folks as it relates to faith, but I think for me, it was it was a light switch. It was a light switch. It was not a slow burn. It was not a gradual. It was like in an instant, I wanted to cut ties with unhealthy friendships. Uh, I wanted to completely immerse myself in Christian subculture, and I wanted to learn the language. I wanted to memorize the Bible verses. I wanted to know all the popular uh, worship songs. Like I, I wanted all of it. It was a new team for you. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like a new sports team where you go into a new sports team and you're trying to learn everybody and learn, you know, learn how to fit in. Right. And this is where yeah. like the analogy of the sports team is like also uh, like it's a direct, like it's right as it a new team, literally and figuratively. Like these folks who I was playing soccer with four times a week mm -hmm. were also the tribe, the new family I wanted to be around all the time. So I was going to church with them, going to small group with them, going to all of it with them. And so for me, it was a it was a night and day sort of thing. And again, this is where I think like my story, like this is where I think it's super, I think it's, it makes a lot of sense now 
why God chose that particular moment in my journey to sort of do that work. Because again, like I was at one of those moments in my journey where I was, because I had no, um, I didn't have a sort of geographical rooting, if you will, mm-hmm. grew up all over the place. Uh, not friendships because I had to make new batches of them every four years. My family uh, is has a lot of dysfunction, has a lot of pain, has a lot of so that that was a place where I constantly felt disconnected from, like I didn't fit in and connect and belong there, and again didn't have faith. So like, I'm searching for this, I'm searching for this like who am I sort of thing, what do I want to be about sort of thing, um, and so I think that's also I think that it also answers your question as to like why it was like maybe a, not a I. Why it wasn't a slow burn is because there wasn't in my there wasn't anything in my previous life that I was attached to. Like mm-hmm. I think I everything in my previous life was either incredibly disappointing or it just regularly was letting me down. Like so going to parties, getting drunk with my friends, chasing relationship to relationship, like I think the prodigal son story is all has always connected with me on a really, really visceral sort of tangible level because I know that life. Like I lived that life. And I, so I think for me, it has less to say about like my faith, like, Oh my gosh, look at him. He just went like on fire for Jesus. Like, and like it, it actually, I think has less to say about me and my faith. It has more so to say about just how much of a, how how meaningless my existence felt and again 15 year olds are normally not asking those sorts of questions they just don't care as much but i think this is where also the pain of my story the pain of going through having family members battling addiction and having to grow up so fast i was just asking those questions a lot faster than a lot of my friends my friends some of my friends were just it was just video games and cheetos or whatever it's like but for me I was asking those questions a lot earlier because uh, I had to grow up a lot faster. And so, again, this is yet another example of where God, and this, and th- those of you who know me, you know I say this all the time, God doesn't cause stuff. God doesn't, I, I, I'm a big, uh, I'm in big opposition to the phrase, everything happens for a reason. I think God brings good out of suffering, brings good out of pain. And these are just some examples. These are just these are just the examples I'm aware of, right? There's probably a whole bunch I'm not even aware of, but yeah. So for, I think for me, it wasn't a slow burn. It was a light switch, um, largely because I didn't see I didn't see anything in my old life that I wanted to stay attached to. So you jump in. You're going to church on Sundays. You're going to youth group, Bible study, all the things. How did you decide on a church, though, at this point? Because um, did you attend a bunch of different churches and kind of feel, feel the, your way around? Yeah, so um, the first, my first decision, my first time I ever chose a church, it was solely based upon where in the world I could find access to that worship team that was on that CD that my coach played. Mm-hmm. So, like, immediately when I landed back home, it was like, where are those people leading worship and what time is church? And so uh, that landed me at Vanguard Church. Vanguard Church uh, is a church located in smack dab in the middle of Colorado Springs, Colorado. It's a very, very large um, non-denominational uh, evangelical church. And uh, to this day, uh, that church will have a very, very special place in my story and in my heart because uh, it. It gave me the foundations of faith, gave me the foundations of faith. And so 
Um, my coach, now my coach also was going to that church. A couple of my other teammates mm-hmm. were going to that church. So it instantly made that even easier. I had someone to sit with and like that sort of thing. But like at first, that's all it was about. Like it was about feeding this, this, this hunger, this yearning, this thirst for, uh, for Jesus and for um, more understanding, more. I wanted to just, I wanted as much knowledge about who God was and how to do what God wanted me to do and what type of life this God wanted from me. And so at first, um, that, that tribe of Christianity and honestly, that version of faith was exactly what I wanted. It was exactly what I needed. It was very black and white. It was very simple. It was, you know, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And so again, as a new Christian, and again, someone who hasn't had a lot of structure and hasn't had a lot of rooted and groundedness, Mm -hmm. all of those things were super, super, super appealing to me, especially for the first several years of faith. The first several years of faith, I remember... Um, not having many questions, just sort of taking it at face value. And again, it, it, it taught me so much. Like it taught me how to love Jesus. It taught me how to engage my heart. It taught me how to, um, sort of make faith personal, which again, that was one of the missing ingredients to the, the version of faith I was given growing up, which was just largely cultural or sociological or relational. Now it was personal. Now it was personal. I was learning how to personally engage God. And um, I was journaling all the time. And I was talking to God all the time. I was a weird high schooler walking around my neighborhood looking like I was talking to myself. And I was talking to Jesus. <laughs> and so I'm sure like I got weird glances from neighbors. My parents and my family didn't have any, any idea what it would do with me. Um, I think they... Um, and and And... and I think I'd say this regrettably now. I think I also was super passive aggressive, like with them in the early stages saying like, well, I now have a real faith. Hint, hint, wink, wink. I now have a real relationship with Jesus, mother, father, because again, they're like, they're seeing me diving into faith and like, they're asking what's changed. And I'm using this as an opportunity to sort of prove to them that I'm a real Christian. They're not or whatever sort of thing. And so, so yeah, so a lot of good habits in that stage, also some bad habits sort of interwoven in. But this was like, this was kind of the, the beginnings. This was a lot of the beginnings that, uh, where it started for me to really grow. Tell me more about how your, how your family reacted to this change in you. And then and answer a really silly logistical question for me. I'm like, okay, if you're 15 years old and you don't have a car and you can't drive, like, are your parents like driving you to church and like, or friends stay? Like, I guess what I think about is, was it weird to have like your parents dropping you off at church while your friends' parents are probably going there with them and walking into the building with them? Was that ever something right. that you felt weird about? Yeah. So, like, logistically, the timeline. It just so worked out that like as these shifts were happening, I turned sixteen. I got my license. I was driving myself. So like that 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 awkward sort of dynamic was not happening. More so the dynamic, um, which again sort of like, and I think from this is like it's important to note, and I hope I'm not painting this picture. I'm not. I certainly should not be painting a picture of my family where they were like opposed to what was happening in me, or even like turned off by it like in many regards i think they were encouraged by it and were excited about it and were like man this is this is good this is great um there weren't a whole lot of like next level conversations happening about like well what are you learning at church and that sort of thing but it was just more so like i mean i think my parents were actually super supportive of that i think 
I think, again, like I mentioned a minute ago, where the rub started happening was largely in part caused by me gaining this awareness of God, gaining this awareness of Jesus, gaining an awareness of more and more of the changes that were going to be required on behalf of my life. Not only uh, was I doing that, but I was making sure other people um, were uh, performing those changes. They were living into those new changes in their life. And so I think the rub for between me and my family was when I started and I think there were some moments where I did so justifiably. I did so like, and I like, hey, this isn't healthy. We shouldn't live this way. We shouldn't relate this way to one another. There's a better way. And there were also moments where I was a self-righteous little jerk who uh, was constantly calling people out and being super legalistic about stuff that honestly, um, maybe Jesus did care about, but it wasn't my place to call him out on it because I just stopped doing it four minutes ago. So... It's so for me, like I'm calling, and I remember I did this with friends too. Like I'd say, you know, God really doesn't want you doing what you're doing uh, with that girl or, you know, going out of those parties. And like, and like they're rolling their eyes because they just remember three months ago, Kyle was doing the same thing. Like was just living the same way. And so I think for my, like my parents, my family, my younger siblings sort of took some interest and were kind of like observing and were interested I think my parents were completely supportive, didn't care as much, um, except for the moments when I started using it. I started using my faith uh, as a weapon against them to sort of correct behavior in them that was... And again, some of it really needed to be corrected. And so like this is where it's kind of like one of those complex moments. And some, of, some people who are listening to this, they know what this is like. You've had uh, relationships with people where... Your faith has created new understanding. There's a better way to do this. There's a better way for us to relate to one another. I think I was an imperfect messenger. I still think the message was valid. I think God was trying to not only reach me in that season, but also this is what God does. Like God, um, God will use a spark to catch a fire to a forest. And so like, I think part of what God was doing was God was trying to use me to reach some of my other family members and stuff like that. And I think on some level I did. And in some level I caused pain and this is just sort of the natural messy complexity of sort of going through a major life change in the midst of folks who aren't on that same journey they're not on that mm -hmm. same path and how does that happen so i think like i think if my parents were here i think they would say there were moments when they were inspired by the things that i was learning and saying and doing and the knowledge newfound knowledge that i was discovering about god and i think there are moments where they would say um, he was kind of a punk and um, <laughs> um, I don't know I, and, I, and I regret some of those uh, conversations um, especially as it relates to addiction and and such I think I had a very black and white legalistic understanding of it at first and so I was just sort of saying just stop like just just repent and stop doing this stop living this way and then you get around the block enough and you start learning things like that or not nearly as black and white. They're a lot more complex. It's a lot more gray. And not saying that I shouldn't have done anything about it. I just think I would have handled those conversations differently. Again, I'm 16 years old. So, like, I just, I, I don't know anything about anything. I'm just. But you think you know everything. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've for been sure. There. I yeah. Was there too. You think sure. you know everything and you're a new Christian. So, it's like doubly bad. So, you're yeah. just walking around like a little know it all who <laughs> is out to fix everybody. So, you yeah. know.
so switching topics just a little bit. So I want to think about college. So did did you have like when you thought about college before you became a Christian? Did you have like did you think about that? Did you have plans? And then how did that change after you became a Christian? Yeah. So I'm a classic Enneagram three. You are as well. Yes. So we can just. Thir- so, I mean, I knew I was going to Carolina from the time I was born. There well, was no doubt. That's because. Uh, Duke Mike and Iris raised me very that- well. That's because Mike and Iris raised me very well. Thank you. So I'm a classic three. Those of you who are familiar with the Enneagram, threes are the achievers. They're the performers. They're the ones who are very ambitious, always running after new goals and trying to set new records all the time and that sort of thing. So I think prior to, and even prior to becoming a Christian and even post becoming a Christian, but not knowing what I was going to do with my life, I was still very, like, that didn't really change much. Like, I was like, I'm going to become something that is super, super successful and makes a crap ton of money. And even when I became a Christian, <laughs> even when I became a Christian, yeah, the irony uh, is funny. But um, the fun, like, so even when I became a Christian, I would, like, my, my motive somewhat changed in that I was like, well, maybe I should shift gears and look to something that can help people. And still make a ton of money. So, like, maybe I'll become a doctor or something like that that can really make a difference and help people. Um, but also something that really challenges me, something that I'm going to have to really run after and uh, something that, again, like, I could be successful in. And so um, I think, like, my thought process was largely that. Now, another factor is, again, soccer. So I'm being recruited to play soccer from a couple of different colleges, Um and so I'm trying to factor that into the mix as well. And I'm trying to leverage that to get scholarships. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep playing. Like I'm not done. Like I, I, we, during high school, we won a couple of different state championships. And so I had a, quite a bit of success with it. Um, and so I'm not done. I want to keep playing. And at the same time, I want to uh, sort of find a space, but this sort of creates like the new, this created like the new sort of crisis, if you will, for me. So then I'm getting into my junior year of high school and maybe this is where you were going, but like I'm going into my junior year of high school and I'm trying to figure out, it's like, what do I do? Like, I know, I'm, I know I want to be a Christian. I know I want to be a follower of Jesus, but I don't have any idea where I'm supposed to go to school or what I'm supposed to study uh, or any of that stuff. And so that created a whole bunch of brand new questions. you go into deciding you would attend Indiana Wesleyan um and I think you knew I think this is a little bit of your story that I think I know I think you knew you wanted to become a pastor when you went to Indiana Wesleyan am I correct so I did but you kind of have to back up a little bit so so again this moment happened or this new so I'm, I'm I have this moment of faith. I go back to Colorado. I'm jumping in full force with faith. And then about a year later, I'm starting to sort of like get into the final stages of high school. And I'm trying to figure out what the heck I want to do with my life. I'm not having an idea what that is. And um, I'm at church one Sunday. I'm at church one Sunday. And this was actually the end of my junior year, going into my senior year. So the, the, those of you who are raising high schoolers, maybe you're a high schooler yourself, uh, you know the the pressure of this season of trying to figure out, oh my gosh, I'm only 17. How am I supposed to know everything about myself and what I'm supposed to do with my life? So this pressure is ramping up and I have no idea where I'm going to go to school. 
and I'm praying all the time. Like, God, if there's, if there's a particular lane I'm supposed to be in or a particular path, just like let me know. I would love to know that. And so one day at church, I'm sitting there, and this is almost this is almost like a year to the day. It's almost like a year to the day after my conversion moment, what we would in church call our conversion moment. I have my call moment. So I'm at church, and um, it's a normal Sunday, normal worship service, normal worship songs, band sits down, announcements happen, and then again, something happens to me. So the moment, almost like in the moment that the senior pastor gets up on stage to start preaching, it's almost as if I, I, I don't remember hearing anything he was saying because I remember something, someone, a voice welling up inside me saying, that's what I want to do with your life. That's what you're going to be. And I remembered like clear as day, like uh, verbally and out loud, audibly laughing uh, at that thought. And just sort of like, oh, that's a funny thought. Like that's a funny sort of weird thing that happened in the little church. Let me sort of move that out so that I can get back to listening to what the pastor has to say. But I like, it, it, it like nags at me, like nags at me. It's like, it's like this cloud this that, that won't leave me it's like you remember the cartoons or the clouds like following mm-hmm. the person around yep. like that's the best analogy i have for it like it was just sort of following me around everywhere i went couldn't stop thinking about it couldn't stop thinking about it and i was like okay there's literally no way that i was being called into ministry i just started following jesus one year ago i don't know anything about the bible i don't know anything yet i don't know anything about this like i don't know the first I, i've been a member of a church for less than a year how am i supposed to lead a church and so I'm pushing it off. I'm pushing it off. I'm pushing it off. And eventually, it took like two weeks. Two weeks. It just like wore me down. Like I was like, okay, okay. I can't stop thinking about this. There is something enticing and captivating about it and terrifying and ridiculous about it. I'll go talk to somebody. I'll go talk to somebody. And so I actually get a meeting. I get a meeting with the pastor of uh, this church. Uh, his name's uh, Pastor Kelly Williams. I meet with him and uh, we meet for upwards of two and a half to three hours. He listens to my whole story. He asks me a ton of questions. And he says, Kyle, I want to I want to stay in conversation. I want to stay in relationship. But by all accounts, it seems to me that you've received a call to ministry, a call to become a pastor. And so that was the first moment. That was the first moment. I think this is often how God works. God, why, why I am such a proponent of the local church and doing faith in community, not doing uh, faith in isolation, is because often how God has worked in my own life is God has spoken something to me and then affirmed it in community. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the things that more and more people are asking is like, why do I need to go to church? What's the point of being in community or whatever? Like, I think, well, it's because, quite frankly, sometimes I have believed God said something to me and been wildly wrong And there's also been times where God has said something to me and I've dismissed it as not true. And I've needed the community to come alongside and say, actually, this is, this is very true. And then the next day, so this, this is the sort of solidifying cementing moment of my call. I was over at a friend's house. I've told the story, um, in sermons before, but, um, I was over at a friend's house and I had met this person's mom for the very first time. So they invited me over for dinner. I've never met this mom before in my entire life. She's one of the most godly women to this day I've ever met. She just is like on a next level with the Holy Spirit, just sort of like listens and can hear the Holy Spirit talk. I uh, would love to be on that level at some point in my spiritual journey. Anyway, my friend at one point at the dinner, uh, I shared this with her. I shared, I feel like I'm feeling being called to ministry. 
this friend did not share it with her mom, but then over dinner says to her mom, she says, hey, mom, so uh, Kyle actually has had some interesting sort of moments happen in his journey lately. Uh, can you guess what he wants to be when he grows up? And she looked at me and it was as if she was, again, tapping into this otherworldly uh, frequency. And she just says very, very calmly, oh, a pastor. To which I'm freaking out. Like, I'm like, I, I get, I'm about to get up from the dinner table and say, okay, that was a really cute magic trick. I'm out of here. Um, but I remember just sort of like believing her. That it, it, it was in that moment. It was, it was as if God was speaking directly to me. And it was, again, cemented. And so this leads all the way back to your question. All the way back to your question of like, how did I choose colleges or what all that kind of stuff? Like, I think that was the most defining moment because then immediately the list of colleges that I was now interested in and excited about and actively pursuing were now Christian colleges. And so Mm -hmm. the very, very long story short is that's what eventually connected me with Indiana Wesleyan. Uh, It's a small Wesleyan Methodist school in Marion, Indiana in the middle of corn country, nowhere. Um, And they have a soccer team. They have a Christian ministries program. I had some friends uh, who actually had established a sort of like Colorado to Indiana pipeline Mm -hmm. who were also believers and uh, really loved the school so that's how I got introduced to the school, got offered a scholarship to play there, and it made the decision-making actually a lot easier um, because um, now I knew what I was doing. Um, so, which again, also caused some interesting conversations with family members. My my dad always thought that maybe I would go to the Air Force Academy and follow in his footsteps, and they had heard me talk about becoming a doctor, and then you can imagine the shock on their face when I come home and say, so guess what? I am going to be one of those preachery people. So um, maybe for some interesting conversations there. But that was one another pivotal moment in my story that really altered the trajectory forever. Wow. Hmm. I'm just shaking my head because it's, it's so cool. It's so cool to hear about. Because um, that's, folks, that's a big part of the story. I would not heard all of that before. So it's, it's fun to hear. Well, and um, I think like it's also like a... It's funny because how you framed it, like how did yeah. you choose to go to any Wesleyan? How did right. some people have asked me? The, like I have some family members that would be like, "How did you choose to become a pastor?" And I was like, "Oh, easy. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't." Like um, one of the things that I love about Jesus and also terrifies me the most about Jesus is um, there are some moments uh, when Jesus presents a pathway for you and you're like, Oh, this is obviously where I should be going. Thank Mm -hmm. you, Lord. And then you move on. And then there are moments where Jesus runs you down and says, Hey, this is where I want you to go. And you're like, "Mm -mm, I don't want to. And Jesus says, okay, well, I'm, I'm just going to, uh, send a, a copious amount of holy interruptions into your life and wear you down until you see that this is actually the best pathway for everybody. Um, and that is certainly my call to ministry. I did not choose to become a pastor. I did not choose this work. In many regards, it chose me. Um, and so I think like it's it's one of those things that I, I don't take for granted. I think I, I it's never lost on me the privilege it is to serve uh, as a pastor um, because there was there's never a moment and there never has been a moment where I thought I've been deserving of it or even worthy of it. There's a some of you have been in my office. There's a prayer from Martin Luther that hangs. It's not hanging right now because I'm still shuffling um, the frames and stuff around. But there's a prayer from Martin Luther that says, uh, in my own words, it says something to the effect of, uh, Jesus, please do not forsake me because if you leave it all to me, like if you leave all this work to me, uh, I will certainly bring it all to destruction. <laughs> and I just like, 
I love that prayer so much because I think it is the prayer that every single pastor, uh, every single spiritual leader knows on a, on a profound level. So tell me a little bit about like your experience at Indiana Wesleyan and then how you ended up going saying, you know, or deciding to go to Duke. And... Yeah. Yeah. Good. So Indiana Wesleyan, again, much like my experience at Vanguard Church, was phenomenal. I will never say anything but positive things about my experience at Indiana Wesleyan. Similar to Vanguard, uh, it also belonged to sort of the evangelical tribe of Christianity. Um, and so as a result, and so when I say evangelical, those of you who are listening to this, what I mean by that is um, it is a it is a version of Christianity that um, is very uh, Bible-centric, meaning that it, it takes the Bible as the, the literal word of God, and so you are reading the Bible literally, you are interpreting it literally, you're applying it literally to your life. Um, that's just, that, that's one cornerstone of evangelicalism. There's more, and we'll get into that, uh, maybe another conversation. But, so for me, I'm, I'm, I'm building on that. Indiana Wesleyan was really pivotal for me because it was building upon that. It was building upon that. So it was building upon not just my biblical knowledge, but my theological knowledge. And um, I'm also taking courses like intro to pastoral ministry, where I'm learning the ins and outs of how in the heck do you do this work? Um, I will never forget. I'll never forget. This is like my second or third year at Indiana Wesleyan. I had a professor for my intro to pastoral ministry. He walks in. This is like one of those like scenes from a movie. He walks in and he goes, all right, students. So if any of you can graduate from this school, and go and do anything else other than being a pastor. And be perfectly fine. Be perfectly content with your life. I would like for you at the close of today's class to unenroll from this course. Find that path and go and do it. And don't come back to this class. Mm. No. <laughs> What did that? So, what did class two look like? How many people were there? Right, right. I don't remember. I remember some of us like looking around. I don't remember seeing like a huge absence of folks. A, a huge absence of folks. And you can say what you want about that strategy, but I will say what it did for me was it sort of like calcified. Like, oh man, like I'm I've been ruined. Like this is actually like I actually can't do anything else. Like this is. Mm. There is something that's happened to me, not only in my own life, but in my own like vocation, my understanding of vocation and calling and all of that, where I literally can't do anything else. Like I can't go and become a businessman and find and and not feel a deep sense of like, like I abandoned myself mm -hmm. in that process. So say what you want, but that was a really pivotal moment where it's sort of like, again, God was just doing a lot of this, these moments to affirm this path that I was on. And so I'm, I'm, again, I'm having these experiences. I'm getting all leadership opportunities as well. So I was the captain of our soccer team uh, in college. And so they gave me some leadership opportunities, uh, gave me some opportunities to do devotions and things like that. I'm taking preaching courses. So I'm learning how to preach for the very first time. It is so funny because I remember uh, early on, um, Kelly, again, pastor, uh, one of my, fir my first pastor, he said, he's like, just be prepared. The first time you ever preach, he's like, give me a pep talk. He's like, the first time you ever preach, you're going to talk really, really fast. And it's going to go by a lot quicker. He's like, my first sermon ever was seven minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'll never forget my very first sermon. It was at Exit 59 Church. Exit 59 Church in Gas City, Indiana. I promise all of these are real names. Mm -hmm. They are not made up. And um, I had the opposite problem. And those of you who are members of our church who... Um, 
know my preaching style. This is probably not shocking to you, but mine was not seven minutes. It was 37 minutes. And so... Not surprised. Not surprised. But I remember, oh my gosh, I remember just loving every minute of it. I remember being terrified. I remember being terrified. Uh, But I remember the moment I started uh, loving every minute of it. Um, And so I just will, I'll always be super, super grateful uh, because my time in Indiana Westland, it deepened my knowledge, it deepened my understanding. It gave me opportunities to sharpen my leadership gifts, my preaching gifts. I actually, when I, 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 so then go fast forward to my senior year, I won preacher of the year. So it actually gave me the opportunity to preach in front of the entire student body, which is three, 30, 3,000 sort of students between two chapel services. So I went to a private, this is, uh, Indiana Weston is a private Christian school. And so you were mandated to go to chapel three times a week. I promise this is a true story. You also had to sign a social covenant saying that you would refrain, refrain from any type of social dancing because obviously dancing leads to sex and sex leads you away from Jesus. More on that at another moment. But um, I, which, uh, so again, Indiana Wesleyan, very, very interesting sort of environment. Very, a lot of things to roll your eyes at, but also just a lot of really beautiful, wonderful opportunities God gave me there. And so um, that, was an, that was another moment. That was, that was the first time I'd ever spoken to um, a really big crowd before. Um, and they were just like, there was so many of those moments that God really used to further affirm, this is what I've been called to do. This is who God has called me to be. And <clears throat> slight slight aside just for a moment i think why part of why these moments have been so important so vital to my own story is because these have been the moments that i revisit during times when um i'm getting punched in the gut by this work which especially over the last two years but even beyond that with general elections and our denominational stuff going on there's days where i sit at my desk or i go home and i'm like good lord like I don't know if I have what it takes and I don't know if I can do this anymore. Um, Oftentimes I go back to those moments. I go back to several of those moments and say, no, but I am like, nah, like, but I am. This is, this is so obvious. Um, So obviously the path that God has me on. And so um, I don't know. I think that's one of the things I encourage all of us as listeners as well when you have these big moments in your life, man, like write them down, journal them, like don't forget them because uh, there's this saying that I, I love so much and I think it was Kelly who said it once. He said, don't, when you enter into the darkness, don't forget what God promised you in the light. When you enter into the darkness, don't forget what God promised you in the light. And I think like a lot of those moments in Indiana Wesleyan at college were uh, those moments of light, of clarity of like who God's called me to be and what I'm called to do and that sort of thing. Now, I will say, the other thing that started happening in Indiana Westland also, um, so I had all these beautiful, wonderful, positive experiences. I also, underneath the surface, uh, started experiencing for the first time in my spiritual journey. Again, I'm new to faith, new to this whole Christianity thing. Uh, my first experience with doubt. My first experience mm-hmm. with wrestling with God, wrestling with what I believe. I went through um, my, so my, uh, uh, sorry, my sophomore year of college, I went through what would later be described to me as the dark night of the soul. So that's just fancy uh, sort of theological jargon for 
uh, seasons in your spirituality where you doubt, where you don't feel God near to you, you don't hear God speaking to you. And again, if you've had a journey like mine where it's like a light switch, you went from never talking to God or hearing God to feeling like you're hearing God on a profound and powerful level. And then you go through a season where for an entire year, you don't hear God, sense God, even know if God exists. Like that was hard. Like that was really, really hard. But it, what it did was, and this is, so the, the phrase dark night of the soul, it comes from a theologian by the name of St. John of the Cross, uh, who uh, he's a mystic monk sort of writer who is sharing a lot about this because he had this firsthand experience. Mother Teresa has also had, she writes about this on now of her experiences with faith that she goes through these seasons where she doesn't feel or hear God near to her. And so I go through this for the very, very first time. And I think God uses that to begin to do some reconstruction in me, some, some, some theological reconstruction in me, some faith reconstruction in me. I think one of the things that just by default happens when you have a story like mine is you have a faith that is very emotional. It is very sensational. It's had these very big, powerful, dramatic moments. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that God had to do is bring me through a wilderness dry period where those were absent to move my faith from emotional to something a little bit more permanent, something a little bit more disciplined, something that wasn't relying solely upon how I feel. Because let's be honest, some days you wake up, those of you who are listening to this, you wake up and you feel like praying, you feel like reading scripture. And the other nine out of the 10 days (laughs) you are, you don't. You're, You're so burdened by what's happening at work or what's going on with your kids or you just don't have any energy. For whatever reason, you're in a funk, you're in a grumpy mood and you don't feel like it. And so that, that was one shift that happened in college in particular, that I, I moved from having a, an emotional faith, that one that was just very reactionary, to one that was more disciplined, one that had to learn how to be committed, even when I didn't feel and hear God, just as much so when I was. The other thing that shifted uh, was, so intellectually, intellectually. So again, I shared, when I first came to faith, I, I belonged to you know, a version of faith that was super, it was a, a version of Christianity that was very, very simple, very, very black and white, very, very straightforward. And it worked. It worked. It worked until it didn't work. <laughs> like it worked. It worked until the questions and the intellectual hurdles and things like that, that I had kept at bay for a number of years, I couldn't do so any longer. So eventually I just started having questions. Like I started having questions about, um, like what 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 do we do with some of the like discrepancies and the inconsistencies in the Bible? Like I was I was taking intro to Old Testament, I was taking New Testament, and so like I'm watching some of those discrepancies, but I'm also just seeing like literary, like the journalism person in the room, you can appreciate this, but I'm seeing the discrepancies between two events, like different authors, same event, and they're talking about it. So so for me it's presenting some interesting questions of like, well, how do I I said all along, I believed that the, the Bible is just, it's an errant, it's infallible, it's the perfect word of God. But there's, there are some errors and some discrepancies and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of coming into contact with that. I'm also coming into contact with some of my like, theological questions, theological questions, like um, the way in which we talked about salvation and how all along, and even somewhat reinforced at Indiana Westland that the only people who were saved, the only people who would experience the salvation were the people who prayed the prayer, who asked Jesus into their hearts. Well, again, I wasn't trying to be a naysayer. I just had legit questions because I knew enough people and I had enough experience by moving around all over the place that I was like, look, 
There are some people who ain't ever going to pray that prayer because they've been abused by the church or abused by a religious person, abused by a father who was doing it in the name of Jesus or what have you. So like, are they going to be kept out of the kingdom? Are the people who live in this part of the world who only are, have only been exposed to this religion going to be excluded? Does God not care about them, even though they're never given the opportunity? So like, this this sort of formulaic soteriology, uh, which again, sorry for the fancy, soteriology is a doctrine of salvation, the study of salvation, who who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. This very sort of formulaic, you got to do the steps. Like I just started seeing issues with, I started having problems with. And then thirdly and finally, I think another issue that I started to really struggle with, really struggle with, was the way in which this version of faith was causing me to treat people outside the church. So um, non-believers, atheists, people who um, belong to a different religion, maybe people who for the entire time I've been a Christian, I've been told they are outside the church because of their uh, sexuality or because of their lifestyle or what have you. Over and over and over again, I just found myself having a lot of trouble uh, with and no one was ever saying you need to be mean to them or judge them or whatever, but it was always like, it was always buried in the subtext of like, well, they're obviously not living a life sort of in alignment with God. And so you, it is your responsibility as the Christians not condone said behavior or said beliefs, but to make them aware of it and to talk about it and to call them out on it and confront them on it. And I think this is where my experience with my mom also is a little bit helpful and the experience with my parents my parents and my family is a little bit helpful because I, I just learned that strategy doesn't work. Like shaming people into heaven just doesn't work. Uh, condemning people, trying to scare the hell out of them, literally uh, and spiritually, it just, it doesn't work or it works only for a short while. And then on the other side of that, there's like an a, a afterburn effect where they, they might make a quick change because a fire was lit underneath them, but then that fire consumes them and then they want nothing to do with it. So they're even worse off now than they were before. They're even more turned off to faith now than they were before. And so I think in those, so like biblically, theologically, and like relationally, I started having a lot of questions uh, in regards to how I as an evangelical uh, was being taught to approach those questions, approach those conversations, and approach those people. So I think Indiana Wesleyan, my, my experience in college was a mixed bag of all of that. All of that. I'm, I had a very different college experience. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're probably not alone. I feel like a lot of people who are listening to this are going, sweet Jesus. Those were the things that Kyle was talking about in college. I was talking about whether we were going to get PBR or Natty Lights this weekend. Yeah, exactly, so exactly. this is not... This oh, is, gracious. Yeah. And I am aware of that. I am aware that my experience um, is very, very different than, than many's in that regard. So, 
you make a decision, you get, I guess, to, I mean, you probably technically could have become a pastor straight out of Indiana Wesleyan. There are routes that way, but you decided to go to seminary school at Duke. So tell me, I want to know, like, how, when you went to Duke, how was your calling con- uh, affirmed? But then also, how was it challenged? Yeah. Yeah. So because of all those experiences in college, I knew I was looking for something different in seminary. I knew I was looking for, A, something less homogenous. So I wanted, so most of the people who went to Indiana Wesleyan, most classrooms I were in were predominantly white, predominantly middle class, predominantly evangelical Christian. So Everyone was just the same. So I was. Just, I remember having a strong. I don't know where this came from. Maybe it was just because like having four years of it. I was just like I had a strong urgency around surrounding my people with different experiences of faith, theology, belief, and just life. Right. So I think that was one of the motivating factors for what helped frame my search, filter my search for what I was looking for in uh, seminary. Um, I think another thing I was looking for uh, was just an opportunity to fur- yeah, further my further my formation. Like there were some of my friends who graduated from Indiana Wesleyan and they and graduated from college and they knew exactly where they wanted to they wanted to be a pastor and they wanted to do so right out of the bat. I was not ready to do that, and nor did I even I didn't know how either. So again, <clears throat> I grew up not going to church, and then I was in a large non denominational church. So there's a whole there's a whole myriad of ways in which you could become a pastor in the non-denominational tribe, but most of the time it's through church planting. Like you plant it from an anchor church or you just plant it on your own out of a basement sort of thing. Like Vanguard was started out of a basement with some funding from some other organizations, but uh, largely out of that. So I'm still figuring out like where and how, like is, I, I don't, I don't want to live in Indiana forever. No offense to the Indianians. Um, but I just like, I don't know where I want to live. I don't even know how to do this or, or even with whom, with whom, like, I think those are all questions. So I think Duke was also like a, <laughs> it was probably also like a delaying of those decisions. <laughs> Cause I just didn't know, like, I just didn't know. And so like looking for those things and wanting, and, and always loving North Carolina. My mom's family lives in North Carolina. So North Carolina kind of was home base for us. Burlington, Greensboro area. We used to come back here for summers and, Christmas time, and so I always loved North Carolina, a uh, big Duke fan, and so I was like, you know what, well, this is a great opportunity for me to further my formation stuff and and get over here to the place I've always wanted to be. And so um, Duke um, challenged me like none other. Uh, good gracious. Duke, Duke challenged me like none other. So again, if I'm stepping into Duke with already a lot of these theological and biblical questions sort of swirling around, um, one of the things that I'm so appreciative of uh, during my time at Duke was an affirmation that I wasn't the only one asking those questions. Mm-hmm. And there was an intellectual bravery, I think, that I encountered there to face those questions and try to find answers to those questions that were consistent with the person of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that I think um, persons in my previous evangelical tribe couldn't appreciate, couldn't see, they saw it as, uh, well, you're just looking for a watered-down version of the Bible and watered-down version of uh, Christianity that just aligns with culture, just aligns with what you want, and you're just picking and choosing. And that actually is not a fair read. It's not a fair read of what transpired during my seminary work. I think for me, 
what happened was I was given an opportunity to really, really wrestle, really, really wrestle with some of these questions that I had and ultimately try to discover a reading and a way of practicing this faith that actually still aligned and remained consistent with the person of Jesus and didn't sacrifice those things. And so being in a space that uh, facilitated spaces for that was, was pivotal. Also being with folks uh, who had very different experiences than me. So this is where I, this is the first time in my life where I was um, surrounded by a considerable amount of students of color uh, and persons whose experience racially and ethnically was so very different than mine. And so I got to hear, I got to hear sort of secondhand, I got to hear, but I got to hear their firsthand accounts of how their experiences impacted the way they see life, see faith. It also called me out on a lot of the uh, forms of racism that were embedded in my own life and psyche and theology. Um, and so like it only uh, helped me there. I also encountered um, LGBTQ Christians for the very first time, believers who had wrestled with uh, and struggled with what the Bible seems to say on the topic and uh, what their experience of God has been and how do we sort of go about navigating these things. And so all of those things, all of those conditions really, I think, created a beautiful space for me to not only, I think, um, resolve some of those intellectual questions and things like that I had, but also it just further expanded my imagination of God. It further... It, it honestly, it made me realize that the version of God that I had been worshiping before, the, the version of God that I had inhabiting before was just so much smaller than actually who God truly is and was. And so you go back to the conversation on salvation where I was like, well, I was always taught that the only people who get into heaven are the people who pray this prayer. So that's really, that's a small, mm-hmm. that's a small group of people. And now I was being presented with a group of people who were talking about their own experiences of faith and different ways in which to read and interpret and understand scripture and they're not doing so so as to self-justify, you know, harmful behavior. They're doing so to help expand. They're they were expanding and increasing and augmenting my understanding of God. And I think for me, that that was one of the things that broke. That was one of the things that sort of broke, if you will, of like this this sort of I had this this connection, this attachment to this very small version of God that was broken. And substituted out with a much, much bigger God, a much, much bigger God, a God that was a lot more compassionate than I had given God credit for. Um, one that was a lot more accepting than what I'd always given credit for. I think one of the, one of the crucial moments was like when I was starting to learn and understand this God could actually be a lot more loving and compassionate and merciful than I, I think what happened was I was like, oh my gosh. There's actually a deep, deep problem if the version of Christianity that I have says that makes me feel like I'm more compassionate than God. Like if I'm inhabiting a version of Christianity where I would love to have mercy on you, I would love to tell your friend who doesn't belong to faith. I would love to tell uh, your friend who belongs to a different religion that God still loves them, but you know, and God still accepts them. But I'm sorry, like my Bible tells me that I can't tell you that because God doesn't feel that way. Like if I'm inhabiting a version of Christianity where I'm more compassionate, I'm finding myself wanting to be more merciful and loving than the God of the universe, that's probably a very clear indicator that I'm, I've substituted the real Jesus for a, a man-made version of Jesus that 
conforms to more of my norms, customs, status quo sort of thing. So had a lot of those experiences. Um, and so again, uh, and it just sort of like continuing to fuel my understanding of who God was and what God was like and who I was called to serve and lead. This is the one final thing I'll say about my time at Duke, um, which again, sort of eventually was one of those sort of connecting moments. So Duke is, so I go to a Methodist school in Indiana Wesleyan. Duke is actually a Methodist seminary. So it's a strong connection to the Methodist conference and Methodist congregations. And I don't know much about Methodism at all because again, I didn't grow up in faith and then I didn't go to Methodist churches. But what, one of the things that led to the shift there was when I moved here to North Carolina, this is where like the whole, the whole thing sort of comes full, full circle. And it sort of like comes down to a precise moment. So when I moved here to North Carolina, while I was studying at Duke, I was a youth pastor at a non-denominational church here in the area. And those of you who are living uh, here in this region, here in central North Carolina uh, during that time, you know that there was um, a, Amendment 1 back when, what year was that? That was like, what, 2012? We'll do a, fact, we'll do a fact check later. Um, 2011, maybe. Um, so there's a, big, there's a big discussion in North Carolina about amending, so uh, making, a, making one of the changes to the North Carolina Constitution that actually, as a result, if, if performed, if voted upon and approved by the people, uh, it would limit and cut off some civil rights uh, of LGBTQ persons. And I'm worshiping at this evangelical church. I'm, I'm, I'm the youth pastor there. And I, so to be very, very fair, I still don't know at that moment in time, I still don't know, I don't have my full theology around human sexuality fleshed out yet but what i do know is that there's no christian justification for taking away anyone's civil rights believer or not whatever mm-hmm. and so i remember having deep deep issues with it i was like well there's and like i had this conversation with my senior pastor my senior pastor like asks me he's like so how are you gonna like you, you getting ready for the big vote you know coming up and he asks me like how i plan to do so and i shared with them that I, there's no way I can support that regard. And I was like, for me, it has nothing. This, this is like not even a conversation about what your view is on marriage. This is a conversation on who gets civil rights and who doesn't. And he said, okay, well, if that's what you're going to do, if that's your decision, you can't tell anybody about that because they'll crucify you here at this church. If they find out that that's your stance. Ooh. And I'll never forget, that was the first moment ever in my Christian journey where I was like, oh man, like this, this, <laughs> this is like the, the, the passage of scripture talks about the cost of discipleship where sometimes um, it's going it's gonna to cost you something. This is the first real moment where it got real, like when my employment was on the line, my belonging to that community was on the line. And so over the course of the next several weeks, uh, he, he initiated and facilitated my plan for how I was going to resign and exit that community. And I remember, so this is where like for me, those of you who are listening to this and you are, maybe you are, you're, you still belong to the evangelical tribe. Maybe you're part of that growing trend, the, the what is it, ex-evangelicals or post-evangelicals. Like I still consider myself in my heart of hearts a deeply, deeply evangelical in a number of ways. But this was the moment where I felt like I got kicked out of the tribe. Like I got, I got, I got removed from the family. And it, 
and I think what was heartbreaking for me was it was because I was trying to love somebody. I was trying to not do harm to someone uh, out of my beliefs. And I was being told that was not, that was not faithful. That was not what Jesus would have me do. And so it caused a whole brand new level of crisis of like, oh, good Lord. Well, then where do I belong? And, and to whom do I belong? Like, God, you called me to be a pastor. Well, that ship just sailed from this. Like, I'm not doing it from this community. I'm not doing it in this tribe. So, like, what, what do I do? And that was when, again, much like my, my, my conversion story, God began surrounding me with people, uh, Methodist Christians. Um, and one of the things that I've always loved about Methodism is it's a version of faith. It's a version of Christianity that, number one, um, engages the brain. And we say we say all the time, don't check your brain at the door. We have that written on our website for, for those of you who are new to our church. Uh, we want you to engage uh, the issues of faith with your mind intact, because that is the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, and written into our three simple rules was the rule, do no harm. And I loved that. Like right off the bat, I knew this was a faith that I want. This is an expression, a, a, a brand, if I can use that word, of Christianity that I could really connect with because it was linking, that it was it was saying. And, these, and the Methodists weren't the only people, but they were the first group of people in my life who came along and said, it matters just as much, not, not it, it matters just as much what you believe as it does how you treat other people. John Wesley had this phrase where he used to say, yes, you should perform acts of piety. Read your Bible, pray, journal, all of that, worship. And at the same time, you better make sure of equal of equal amount you are serving and caring for other people, the stranger, the foreigner. Um, and so when the Methodists came along and said, you know, we'll give you a space to be that kind of Christian and to lead those kind of people, I think I, it was one of those moments where I immediately knew uh, what the future held for me. I knew who I was doing it with. I knew uh, the type of people I was called to pastor. Um, and so then it was just a matter of waiting to graduation to figure out where and how that was going to take form. And wow, that's seven and a half years ago now? Seven and a half years ago. This June will be eight. That's right. That's right. Crazy. Um, I... So I know a lot of people would love to know this. And, you know, as an employee of the church, I'd love to know this. What are, what are your dreams for the peak moving forward? Yeah. So I got the call when I graduated um, that there was a, a church that was, had been through a long, number of different... It was a new church start that had been going through a number of different transitions that was uh, looking for its new lead pastor. And this church had a mission statement of... Uh, reaching all who feel disconnected. And the uh, district superintendent who called me and the, the uh, other leaders of the church explained what that meant. They said, this is a particularly a congregation that's paying attention to the fact that my experience with faith that led me to experience disconnection within my own evangelical, you know, Christian tribe that, polit- that, that sort of theological homelessness feeling, that, that that's an increasing feeling that people are, in America are having. You know, one in four Christians say they, they're none. They don't connect to any religious group or affiliate with any sort of religious group. Um, and so there's a church down in Apex, North Carolina, about 30 minutes from here, that's, str- that's really, really trying to pay attention to that landscape and to be a part of the, the movement of Jesus 
in that landscape to reach those folks and to um, and to to talk about a talk about a Jesus that loves God and loves people that uh, use lo- tells you to love God with all of your heart and all of your mind. And after my uh, first three hour orientation meeting at Chili's, which if any of you are <laughs> listening to this, if you would like the way into my heart, just buy me a bottomless bowl of chips and salsa from Chili's and you'll have me like putty. Um, but I was like, sign me up, sign me up. Even though this church is, uh, it's like a toddler. It's kind of fledgling. It's it just started a couple years ago. So it's still trying to gain traction, trying to gain its feet. Mm-hmm. That's actually exactly where I want to be. And that's exactly the type of work I want to do. That's exactly the type of community I want to lead. And so here we are, seven and a half years into this. And I'm just as energized about this work now as I was when I first started. Um, I see so much potential uh, in what this church could be and what this expression of Christianity could offer to the world. Um, Largely, again, because of the landscape we're inhabiting and covid one of the things I've said about COVID ever since the beginning is that it, it didn't cause this great sort of walking away from faith or whatever. It just accelerated. It accelerated a lot of people who are questioning whether faith is of any value or whether the faith that they were brought up with actually aligns with the way in which they see the world or not. And so many people are so tired of lying about it. Like they're so tired of lying about the fact that, well, science says this, my when I go to church, they say that faith says this, and so I have to do, I have to say this, even though in my brain, I actually don't believe that. Like, and so I think increasingly a church like the peak is going to become more and more vital to the mission and the kingdom of God, because I think there's going to be more and more people looking for a version of faith where, yes, you can love Jesus with all of your heart. And you can also do so in a way that engages your mind and engages the questions you have and engages a lot of things that you've uh, wanted and needed to wrestle through um, in the realms of mental health and psychology or racism or social justice issues or maybe just theologically and the way in which you study and understand the Bible, um, all of those things. And so I think for me, I'm, I'm seven and a half years into this thing. Some of the dreams that I have are uh, number one, to to continue to create a space for people who for whom that's been their experience, uh, for whom um, they would they would love an opportunity to reengage uh, faith uh, and their spirituality, but they've never had a safe place to do so. So I'm, again, I'm thinking of people who are naturally skeptics or cynics. I'm certainly thinking of our LGBTQ siblings. Um, I'm thinking of a no, I'm thinking of really any person who disconnected themselves from faith or they were severed. They were disconnected um, because of something they said, something they believed. Um, I, I want to be uh, that group. Uh, I want to be that family. I've always said that like one of the things, I, I, the, the mission outpost is, is here at 12 North Salem Street, but I would love for us to continue to be a church that is just actively going out and finding those who are open to and looking for an expression of Christianity that aligns with their values and the, aligns with um, the way in which they engage and experience the world. Um, and so I think anyone who is theologically homeless right now, I think that's the, that's the space, that's the space I want to be because I want, and I want to be that for uh, not just new believers, but veteran believers, people who want to go deeper um, and discover aspects and areas of their spiritual life. They didn't know existed. Um, Another dream I have for the peak is uh, I would love for us to be a 
can to be understood as a gift and to be seen as a gift to our local town, local community. I think on our on our best days, churches are just sort of non-existent in their local communities. It's just sort of like, oh, well, they kind of keep to themselves. They do whatever they want to do, whatever. And at worst, we're seen as, you know, well, that's that group of judgmental legalistic people over there. I My hope for the peak is that if we, like, if we, right now we inhabit Apex, but any place we inhabit, uh, my hope is that every, any and every place we inhabit, we are always seen as a gift uh, to the local community. And so how do we establish that? We establish that by a strong commitment to missions, a strong commitment to service, a strong commitment to actively being engaged in the issues that our local community is facing, not just sort of being negligent of them and towards them. And so I think those are all things that I get really, really excited about. Um, there's this uh, quote that a church leader said one time. He said, uh, how you measure this is if a for sale, like proverbially, you know, if, if a for sale sign went up in the yard of your church, A, would people notice? And B, would they care? And I hope to lead a church that the answers to those questions are unequivocally yes. That people in our community, if they ever saw a for sale sign up, they would be like, whoa, whoa, where are you guys going? What are you doing? And so I think, you know, establishing ourselves as good neighbors is going to be a key to that. And then thirdly and finally, I think this is the last thing I'll say. Um, is my hope is that our church can not only, our reach can not only be here, uh, but it could be um, far and wide as well. What I mean by that is we are not the only Christians who are asking these questions, who are seeking a version of, of faith that uses our hearts and our minds, that wants to do acts of piety and acts of justice and mercy. Like we, we're not the only ones out there, but I do think there are a lot of other churches that are looking for resources. They're looking for churches to imitate and learn from and grow from. And so my hope is that the peak not only uh, serves faithfully the people who come to our church, but other churches as well. So I could see us in the future publishing. I could see us in the future writing resources, curriculum, children's ministry stuff, youth ministry mm -hmm. stuff. I could see us... I can see our worship teams mentoring and shepherding other worship leaders and such like that in the future. I, I think part of in our vision, we say we want to send, we want to send you out to multiply. I hope that the work that God has started in me started in us started here. will multiply in spaces and places and people that maybe we don't even have the ability to know or understand or see quite yet. So that's just a, a small sampling of my hopes and dreams for, for this place to offer others what I feel like it's already offered me and what Jesus certainly has offered me as well. Thank you. Thank you for all that you do for us. You, um, that's going to be my time to get all gushy for a minute. Um, for those of you who know me, I was a, a member of the church for four years. Sorry, a I've been a member of the church for six and a half years. I have worked here for four years. It was during one of Kyle's sermons that I felt a call to quit corporate life and come here and, mm. and work here. And I don't know that I would have done it had it not been for Kyle. And as I was sitting here, I was like, you know what? I really need to write your high school soccer coach a thank you note for... Um, <laughs> playing a worship song that made you roll your eyes um, because that got us all to the spot where we are today. So mm. thanks, Kyle. Mm. <laughs> um, but thanks so much for your leadership of us. Thanks for sharing yourself with us. 
um, every week, but especially right now during this, this podcast and being so open with us. So I've appreciated hearing your story in more detail, and I know a lot of others will too. Thank you. Thank you for having me on my own podcast. That's um, <laughs> so sweet of you. <laughs> so kind of you to, to welcome me and have me here. Thank you. Everyone, we hope you have enjoyed this first episode of Views from the Peak from Season 2. And I hope this just opens up your minds to what is coming up for the rest of the season. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Views from the Peak. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a rating or a review or maybe even subscribe to this podcast channel so that those who are searching for these stories can find them a little bit more easily. If you're searching for more information about our church and the community that God is creating here, simply head over to thepeakchurch.org. A special shout out to Julie Linville for helping interview and make today's episode possible. I am your host, Kyle Meyer, and we'll see you next time.